everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with uh, Joe Henrich today. Um, Professor Henrich, could you uh, just introduce yourself a little bit? I think you need no introduction to most of our listeners, but for those who, who do need one, uh, can you just uh, talk a little bit about your background and what you do? Of course. Yeah. I'm Joe Henrich. I'm a professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. I apply evolutionary theory to understand human behavior and psychology. I'm particularly interested in humans as a cultural species. We're focusing on how natural selection has shaped our minds for cultural evolution. Um, I do a variety of different kinds of field research, including historical research, but also ethnographic field work. Okay, great. And yeah, you, you've read uh, two fascinating. I think you've read you've, you've read three books, right? I, I know you've you have at least three, right? Yeah. So the two that I've read are The Secret of Our Success and The Weirdest People in the World. And the first thing I would ask, I mean, I, I read The Secret of Our Success and I came I came away with it um, less impressed with human intelligence at the individual level and more impressed with uh, human intelligence at the sort of collective level. Um, and I think that was the intention of the book. And I think it was very sort of eye-opening about how much of our uh, you know intelligence is not really intelligence in the way we think about you know a person having a high IQ and inventing something or doing something. Have you thought about the implications of this for the uh, AI debate? Because people often think in terms of, okay, there's this individual thing that's going to have so much brain power, it's just going to be able to dominate us, it's going to be able to do whatever it wants, whatever its goals are, and we have to align it. Does your, does your theory about what makes us smart tell us anything about what would make potentially artificial intelligence smart and what it could possibly do? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Because the assumption is that, you know, if, if suddenly AI gets, you know, as smart as we are, or smarter, more computational processing power, it's suddenly going to be able to do all the stuff we can do. But we're able to do all of that stuff because of the interlinked sets of minds that accumulate ideas and tools and technologies and actually new ways of processing information over time that's built up without, often without there being any individual inventor at all. Um, so, I mean, the real worry is when they start linking up the AIs and they start learning from each other. Yeah. And do you and do you think that that's sort of uh, you know that that's that's sort of plausible because do they have the mechanism that we had which was uh, you know you have evolution you have genetic selection and then you have cultural selection which as you show is very very powerful I mean will they will they have something like that I mean is that something we can assume or do we have to sort of you know we sort of have to come up with a theory no reason I mean right now uh, to my knowledge I mean who knows what's going on but to my knowledge they aren't built like that but I mean presumably they could be um, but. That would kind of probably be a bad idea, I think. Yeah, to build to build their ability. Yeah, so so I think what we like it, can we like rule out maybe maybe not rule out, but say it's highly unlikely that you know the first time I read about like the uh, the paper you know the paperclip monster that it basically just sits there and it just you know it it figures out like it sits there figures out how to manipulate us and then it figures out how to give itself another IQ point and then it gives itself another IQ point and then it just gets so smart it can figure that it it probably is not like that because nothing in our experience is is like that. That's not how we got here. Right. One That's genius right. building on, on top of another. Yeah. So, th- th- yeah, that has interesting and, implications. And we also um, rely on a lot of serendipity and happenstance. And so, I mean, in some sense, what cumulative cultural evolution is doing is it's a lot. To, it's kind of aggregating a whole bunch of lucky coincidences and insights that have occurred dispersed over a broad population over time. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, there needs to be. Yeah, there needs to be luck, and I think the selection selection mechanism is just—I mean, that's that's what takes care of it. That's the 
that's the sort of key to the whole thing. So yeah, the artificial intelligence story that it's missing that, you know, I think maybe you know, it could still happen, but you need a, I think a good theory for, for that. Right. Um, and so the, uh, the, uh, your other book, uh, the, um, the weirdest people in the world. One thing, you know, people I think have pointed out some reviewers is that, you know, your argument is that basically uh, the Christian marriage and family plan, it makes Westerners unique. It, it cultivates these psychological traits. Um, but, you know, people who've studied the ancient world, you know, they'll say, well, we have Athenian democracy. Uh, we have, uh, you know, Aristotle's considered the father of science. What do you say about the argument that Westerners were sort of already weird? This was sort of baked in before Christianity. Well, it's important to distinguish Greece and Rome. I mean, so Rome has monogamy uh, to some degree, although there's no sexual constraints on men. But I mean, it's founded based on a series of Aristotic, uh, out of, you know, elite clans. And um, the theory actually applies pretty well to classical Athens. So classical Athens made a bunch of changes to the kinship system, including bilateral inheritance and enforced monogamy, where Athenian men could only have one uh, wives, so they cultivated a kind of individualism. So psychologically, they became more similar, and that led to a lot of the changes in the flourishing that you, that we see historically. But I don't think there's a very good argument to be made that that cultural heritage then came to the West, other than bits and pieces of it. A lot of the sort of philosophical tracks and whatnot, the intellectual contributions written by the Greeks, were found after. Europeans had already become weird when they flowed in from Islamic societies and whatnot. So that's sort of too far, too late in the story to account for the differences we see. I think the better argument is that Europeans liked those things because they were kind of individualistic and they had a lot of the psychological features that Europeans had come mostly through independent convergence uh, to to like. So. Yeah. And, you know, what about people who say that the, uh, you know, you also have the you have ancient Greece and you have ancient Rome, but there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I've read a lot of stuff about sort of the Northern Europeans. And so Iceland, for example, uh, presumably they uh, apparently has the longest running parliament in the history of the world. It was started in 950. At least that's the claim. I don't know how much you've read about this. Um, and, you know, that was actually before they were Christian. That was, you know, 100 or 200 years before they were they were Christianized. Right. So there's, you know, there's an argument that there's either, you know, a cultural or sort of uh, genetic basis to these things that go before Christianity. So how, how do you, how plausibly, how plausible so the, do you find that? So there's, I mean, so the first thing to realize is that um, these kind of uh, councils in which members of different uh, subgroups of some larger community, say a tribe, come together to make decision making, that can be found all around the world, including in places like New Guinea. Um, and is, is you know all throughout the new world and stuff and is super common. So some people have tried to say, oh, that's democracy. Well, it's certainly not democracy of the kind that we're accustomed to. So these the representatives in these cases are generally representatives of large kin groups, representative clans. And so the decision making mechanism is not individuals making decisions. It's it's families or clans negotiating by getting a bunch of clan leaders generally men, uh, around a fire or whatever, and then making these decisions or adjudicating cases or things like that. So it does have a representative feel to it, but it's not based on individuals each having a, their own separate voice. Um, so I think that that part is a little bit misleading. So in that sense, Europe looks like the rest of the world, and you don't see the historical processes that then took place elsewhere in the world, uh, took place in Europe. You don't see them appearing elsewhere in the world where there also was these 
groups of people coming together in what looked like democratic representative kind of groupings. Um, people seem to think if you don't have autocracy, then you have democracy. Maybe if you, in some broad sense, these things could be called democracies, but they're still built on a logic of kinship, networks, essentialized dissent rather than individuals, right? So in these societies, for example, prestige is an important thing, but you can find what anthropologists call big man societies where people build up through prestige and they build alliances and stuff. That's, you know, super common across human history. That's not what distinguishes Europe and makes it culturally unique. Mm. Yeah. So if, if you're going to, you know, because, you know, it's sort of hard to, you know, you could you could look back and there's, you know, so many ways to understand history and there's so many ways to understand institutions. And for you, what you're looking for, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're trying to say this is what makes your Europeans unique, it's, it's the individual, right? So you, 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 from what I understand, you think you see that at Athens. You don't really see that as much as in Rome. You see, you know, the, you see the, uh, uh, you know, the tribe. Uh, sort of the community. Um, you don't see that in northern in the northern European pre-Christian times, and you don't see that in most of the rest of the world. So you you don't think like, for example, if a uh, say a historian was analyzing Rome and comparing it to um, ancient uh, Persia, um, you don't do you think that there do you think that there they would not say Rome was more individualistic? Would you think that that's like a that's a so, that's a, a, a correct interpretation thing- of history? Because it's, I mean, it's all it's all relative, right? So, like, they're two thousand years ago. They're not going to be like us today, right? But do you, but what would you say? The argument that there was perhaps you know there was just a strand of individualism relative to the rest of the world in Europe that there wasn't everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I really try to emphasize in the book is to get away from sort of dichotomous thinking. And the theory that's presented in the book begins with variation in the organization of families. And uh, I try to really emphasize in the book you can find variation just within Han Chinese in individualism by looking at the rice agriculture because rice agriculture fosters particularly intensive clans and particularly intensive forms of kinship. So you're going to create variation just within that single ethnic group. You can see something similar in, um, in India. So, you know, you could, you could find this anywhere. And so the point is there's lots of individual variation, but then you need that question is why did Europeans go down this path that really accentuized the individualism and the analytic thinking and the impersonal trust and ended up with quite different institutions, which uh, hadn't been seen before. So, uh, I mean, that's the, the puzzle I'm trying to get is, so in one sense, I already think that put a, forget Europe, just analyze the rest of the world. You'll find lots of variation in those kinds of things. Yeah. The, um, so the, the argument about, I mean, I think there's, you're right that there's something important that needs to be explained European success. Uh, but, you know, I thought that in the, the weirdest people, you know, I think it glosses over quite a bit uh, East Asian success, right? So you have uh, these psychological differences between Europeans and the rest of the world. I don't think if you looked at, you know, uh, you know, polling data or, you know, the kinds of uh, uh, evidence you use, things like polling data, things like, uh, you know, uh, ultimatum games and, and, you know, game theoretic uh, sort of these constructs in the lab. I don't know if you would find that East Asia really stands out, but then when you look at actual like economic growth and sort of social stability, um, East Asia, you know, does stand out. It's really the, the, the real first world countries are only in Euro- European descent or East Asian descent. You have some, you know, uh, Gulf rich monarchies, but they're a completely different, you know, system. They're just sitting out of oil wealth. It's, it's, that's a different thing. Um, and so, you know, how do, how do you think about sort of East Asian success in, in this context? Is it sort of a anomaly of, of the theory? 
Um, well, so the, the first thing that I think that people don't realize is that uh, because these, uh, these societies had a lot of top-down rule, and they'd had a long history of agriculture, and they already had some uh, psychological inclinations related to that, like temporal discounting and stuff that you get from long, long periods of state formation, certain forms of agriculture. Uh, they're prepared to take in new institutions and, and, and enforce them. So, you know, in Japan, after the Meiji Restoration, Japan begins adopting institutions and laws from the West wholesale that alter the kinship structure and basically do kind of quickly what it took a lot longer to do in, in Western Europe as the church expanded. In 1950, China does the same thing. So they try to destroy the clans. They burn genealogies. They begin banning close marriage around close relatives. And they're able to do relatively quickly what it took. Then the one child policy just ends all cousins. Uh, you know, you can't, if you don't have brothers and sisters, you don't have cousins. So, they're able to kind of remanufacture the kinship system relatively quickly. So, I mean, that, that, and that's going to lead to all kinds of changes. So not only do you have the advantages of having the state system, they're able to impose a bunch of the stuff from the West and they have pre-built institutions. So Europe took centuries to develop all of these things like universities, which are now common in Japan and China. That's a Western institution. Um, so, yeah. So I, I guess I don't see, I, it doesn't feel like a problem to me. Yeah. So your idea is that basically the Western package works and the, if you have a strong state, you can sort of enforce the, the Western package, right? That's basically, is that the idea? The, it's, it's the, I mean, the machinery yeah. of global trade and stuff has already been built by the Europeans. And there's at, at least for the 20th century, uh, the U S is driving the innovation. So, you know, the U S is pouring out novel innovations, some from Western Europe, and then they can be put to work and used in all these other places. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, the, sort of, you know, I, I think, you know, is East Asia really the, you know, you have other places in the world that also have long histories of state. So Ethiopia, I think, has one of the longest um, uh, histories of statehood. I don't know, I'm not an expert in Ethiopia, how, how strong or functional that state's been. But, you know, I know, I know Egypt, I mean, you could look at Egypt as if you want a really, really long history of uh, statehood. Um, you could look at, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, Iraq, you know, long history of statehood, although obviously uh, with interruptions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it's all so concentrated in this, uh, you know, in the Northeast, you know, Northeast Asia, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one of the interesting things about the, the cases you brought up, at least Egypt and, and Iraq, is that they have, I mean, so you get the spread of Islam through these places. And in the same way that I argue that that one brand of Christianity adopted this marriage and family program, which broke everyone down into monogamous nuclear families, Islam has, you know, they, they constrain polygynous marriage, but then they adopted this inheritance rule. And the inheritance rule says that daughters get half of what sons inherit. Well, that works fine if you're a trader like Muhammad, but if your wealth is mostly in land, that means every time you marry a daughter off, part of your land goes away and you get poorer and poorer and poorer as you matter, marry your daughters off. So what uh, Islamic society started doing was something that's almost unheard of cross-culturally, except in the Islamic world, is a patrilateral parallel cousin marriage. So you, if you're a male, you marry your daughter to your, to your, to your brother, to your brother's sons. And um, that keeps the wealth within the family and it stops that bleeding off of wealth. Those families get richer and more prosperous. So other groups copy them. Um, but that creates this very endogamous kinship system. 
which is going to have the opposite sort of psychological effect is the forcing people to build long distance ties effect. So, you know, the, there's, there's lots of stuff going on in history. So you got to take into account the role of it. Yeah. And I think what I, I don't know if I, I don't think, I don't think you mentioned this in the book, but you might, you might have that, um, you know, uh, Muslims, uh, often minorities are very wealthy in the Muslim world. So you have Christians from the same ethnic background, um, as, as the Muslim Arabs that are neighbors, and they tend to have more, um, economic success and the Armenians in the uh, Middle East tend to have more economic success. Do you see that as part of sort of makes sense in the context of the theory too? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I haven't focused on that and studied it in detail, but roughly that seems to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I mean, how about, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a, you know, alternative theory that this is just basically, uh, these are basically the, the levels of development are reflecting IQ differences. So if you go look at uh, East Asian IQ, I mean, it's scored, it's, it's scoring well for decades now. Um, you do, you know, you talk about a lot of psychological differences in the weirdest people in the world. You have, you even have a measure of like analytical reasoning and, you know, you, uh, you have a, you have a, a chart with, uh, comparing that to uh, rates of cousin marriage, and you know, you find you know the more cousin marriage or analytic reason. I mean, have you looked at or thought about uh, IQ score differences and sort of how they how they fit into this theory and the, explain the success of different nations? Sure, I mean, the problem with uh, the way that many folks think about IQ is they think that it's somehow a feature of our genes or something like that, rather than realizing that IQ is. A, special, a set of specialized, culturally evolved cognitive abilities for navigating a particular environment. So IQ, for example, just among Americans, I mean, you can, I can tell you the story about other populations as well, just among Americans has gone up dramatically just in the 19th century. So it's impossible for that to have anything to do with genes, but because of a whole series of changes related to nutrition, the nature of television, the nature of schooling, all of this has driven up IQs from what would have been a score of like 75. Remember, IQs are normalized, so they're always placed at 100. But what it would have been 75 or something by modern standards, so you went up from 75 to 100 just by getting everyone to go to school. And, you know, if you look at TV programs since the 1950s, you just have like five characters. And now you have like ensemble plots where you're tracking multiple different narratives in different places, right? It's training up a certain set of cognitive abilities. And we're also training. So the age at which kids learn their colors has gone from like six or seven down to like three. And that's because we have books, right? What color is that? And we differentiate everything by these different colors and shapes and stuff. So, you know, the system is evolving to train people in a certain set of cognitive abilities because of the structure of our society. Those cognitive abilities lead to success uh, within those domains and then they get they get cultivated. And so there, you know, IQ is associated with success because of the structure of society. If you were a hunter-gatherer in the Bolivian Amazon, those skills are virtually worthless. You got to be able to track and do have all these other cognitive skills. So you can imagine a kind of hunter-gatherer IQ, which would be a compilation of the things that tend to lead to success, uh, you know, in the in the Bolivian Amazon or something like that. So in my lab, we've done research, and and this particularly I had a postdoc named Helen Davis who has showed how the introduction of schooling destroys some cognitive abilities. So people get dumber when we send them to Western schools in some ways, but they also get smarter in the ways that we call IQ. So it's just an interesting way that institutions manipulate our cognitive abilities. So when you see differences around the world in IQ, those can be very much the product of schooling, the importance of certain kinds of cognitive abilities, 
emphasis did uh, emphasis on pursuing these kinds of things, all, all those sorts of things. So it's a product. It's like, um, uh, you know, there's a the, the cause and effect is is all screwed up. Yeah, I think that's. I think yeah, there's you know all that is definitely true. Um, and when you, um, you know, and that's true, you have, you have the, uh, the Flynn effect. Um, but that's all, you know, that's not inconsistent with, and you know, you're right. There's, you know, what's like, see what makes for success of, you know, a modern, uh, somebody in a modern industrial society is not the same as, uh, what makes, uh, you sense, you know, the Australian outback trying to survive and, you know, track, uh, animals and, and whatnot. Um, you know, that being, that being said, you know, you could, you know, like, you know, height, for example, you could say the same thing, you know, height has, has gone up, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't um, group differences in height, um, or there aren't, you know, you know, rele- uh, relevant, important uh, genotypic differences between um, individuals and, and populations. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the you know the question is, you know, it's it's not about whether you know people are, you know, whether some groups actually, you know, we might all be equal, or some groups might be better at the hunter gathering. You know, the question is like. Do these patterns sort of make sense? And if you look at things like you know East Asians, I, I know that they you know they looked at the you know, they've uh, you know have IQ tests. I think going back decades, and they you know they they found impressive results before you know they they became wealthy. Uh, North Korea actually does very well at the math Olympiads, which you know it's a it's a very you know interesting considering that North Korea is you know how poor that they are. Um, and so you know isn't this? Uh, I don't know if it's the math Olympiads. It was some mathematic competition. I don't want to you know I don't want to give wrong information out there. Um, so is it, you know is it there the, the, something? You, you know, something to the theory that perhaps this is capturing a lot of what makes some groups good at industrialization and forming industrial, post-industrial societies and others sort of uh, having had less success in doing so? Well, I just haven't seen any evidence that's persuasive. I mean, in all the cases you're mentioning, being skilled in those particular cognitive abilities is highly valued in the society. So children are going to be growing up and cultivating those cognitive skills. So I think what the big problem is people don't understand how plastic our brains and bodies are. I mean, so if you grow up in Kenya, you, you, you might emphasize long distance running. So the top marathoners in the world tend to be Kenyan. And it's not because they get some special genes for long distance running. It's because it's like the youth. It's the thing you want to do in that society is run really far. So kids from a young age start running really far. Um, well, yeah, well, there's I mean, a, actually there. Well, there's a book. I mean, just uh, the running thing. There's a book called The Sports Gene. Um, actually, yeah. argues that there, you know, that there is a reason that the East, the yeah. he goes have into you read East Africa. Oh no, I haven't. Okay, I would check that. out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you do. Uh, yeah. I, I, the, the, yeah. So he says the East, uh, you know, there's a uh, log distance in East Africa and then uh, short distance sprinting in West Africa. So like the descent and it's, it's pretty interesting. I haven't, I haven't read the critique, but you know, this applies even to the Western hemisphere. So like the people who came from Western Africa, they're good at short distance running and they're not good at long distance running. And if you, if you study like a NFL sport, like a, the NFL, it's amazing. You have, you have the NFL quarterback position. It's like a hundred percent, you know, some years are all, you know, West African descent. So yeah, the sports. What, what, about, what about like the NHL? Like there's no Africans in the NHL. Is that due to a lack of a hockey gene? Well, I mean, of course there's, I mean, of course there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, there, I think there's different, there's different sports, right? So, you know, you have running, right. Which is just, you know, you and you're running some things, you know, the equipment and, you know, having the income to sort of, you know, to trade, you know, some things are a lot. So yeah, hockey is probably least likely to be struggling. There's actually a, uh, a book by a guy named Seth Stevens Davidowitz, who I interviewed on this podcast, um, who actually uh, calculated the heritability of different sports. 
um, based on how likely uh, like a, a successful like Olympic athlete was likely to have a uh, a child or th- a child or like how. Uh, likely that a successful had a parent. I mean, that's the way he did it. Um, who also uh, succeeded in the sport? And yeah, stuff like hockey, stuff that requires a lot of equipment, tends not to be very genetic. Things like you know basketball, running. You know, you, you get more. You get more genetic. Remember, we're talking about group, uh, some kind of group level heritability as opposed to individual within population heritability. So it's much harder to maintain population level differences in genetics because any kind of gene flow is going to interrupt that. And I think the thing about the IQ debate, which again is, is missed, is that the, the set of things we call IQ are actually specialized cognitive abilities for navigating the modern world. And they're not generally good cognitive abilities. There's all kinds of situations when you need to be, you need to have spatial navigation or raw pattern recognition, all of which people with high IQ aren't that good at. Mm. Is it a, is it a, is it like no correlation between that and IQ or is it negative? Do you, do you know? Um, well, I've, I haven't, uh, I haven't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Offhand. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you're not, yeah, you're not, part of it. not woven in. I mean, in general, people in cities are horrible at spatial navigation. So cities tend to have higher IQs than everywhere else. So it, it's likely that they're not related or they're negatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, because what, what builds you know, your spatial navigation abilities is having to navigate space from a young age and needing to find your way across terrain and know where, know where the nearest city is and things like that. Yeah. But we do, I mean, but we do see that when, uh, different populations grow up in the same society that values, uh, you know, all these things, economic success, we do see, you know, we do see differences in, in cognitive performance, right? So is that, is that a, a, an argument for, um, well, no, these, I haven't seen the, the kinds of adoption studies you would need to, to, to confirm that. What I have seen is the opposite. So um, when you do have adoption studies, you don't see the population level differences. Mm. So the, I'd, Yeah, I'd like, the, I'd like to see that. I've seen, I've seen I saw an yeah, adoption study. I've seen, uh, no, go ahead. Korean uh, adoptees adopted by Canadian families. Mm. Okay, yeah, like I'd have to see that when I... I have not, I haven't seen, I saw one from Scandinavia and the Scandinavia, it, it, um, you know, there, there, uh, there was the, the, there was a people, I think it was Sweden. They adopted, uh, kids from Korea and then kids from some other countries. And then the, um, yeah, there was some effect of the adoption, but the Koreans still scored really high. And the people from other countries that originally didn't have higher IQs didn't score as high. So it, it removed some of the gap. Um, but not, not all of, I'd like to see the Canadian, I'd like to see the Canadian one. There was a transracial one in, um, Minnesota. Right. There was a Minnesota transracial adoption study too. Um, oh. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the Canadian one because that that would be uh, different from the uh, results. Well, we'll put the we'll put the notes in the uh, we'll put the link in the notes. Um, and what about the uh, you know so what about the, you know putting aside group uh, you know group uh, differences and you know cognitive ability? What about the um, you know, you, you sort of uh, near the end of the weirdest people in the world. You say that you you know you give a argument as to why you don't think. Um, uh, the MFP, the marriage and family plan, had a, a long-term genetic effect on uh, Europeans, and it's you know it's something to do with uh, demographic. Uh, you know, dem- the cities is a demographic shredder. So, can, actually, can instead of me explaining, can you explain that that argument of why you don't think it has had a large genetic effect? Right. Well, so uh, part of the way I uh, what I think the evidence shows, but the the argument is that. Um, a lot of the action in the shifting psychology and the emergence of new institutions in Europe occurs uh, in urban centers and towns. 
And so you have people migrating in from the countryside into places where it helps to be individualistic and analytically oriented and um, encourages temporal discounting and uh, things like that. Um, hard work, values on hard work, things like that. And, um, and throughout this whole period, urban areas tend to be urban graveyards. So historians talk about these urban graveyards. So one idea would be is that if people who are interested in that, maybe they have some genes that make them more oriented towards that, move to these places, and then they're going to tend to be selected out because it's much healthier to stay in the countryside and not move rather than move into the city. So if anything, this process would have created a selection pressure against those genes because you would have been attracted to places where you could put all this stuff to work and then that, that would have worked against you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that makes sense. And it's, it's, it's an interest, it's an interesting argument. Um, at the same time you do in the, uh, book, you do argue that the, uh, the MFP does reach into, uh, rural areas. Right. And so you do have, you know, you have these people moving to the cities, um, at the same time, you know, at the same time, the, uh, you know, Europe is not that urbanized here, like compared to like modern standards, right? It's not like 50% of people are living in the cities, you know, uh, 500 years ago or so. So you do have the MFP, you know, sort of operating at the village level. Um, and you do have people, you know, getting married and mating and, and all that stuff. And, you know, it seems hard to, you know, it seems hard to believe that that wouldn't have some effect. My intuition is over, you know, 500,000 years, despite the, you know, the demographic shredder argument that also makes sense. So how do you feel about that? What do you, you mean that it would, that it would select for, those kinds of genes? Yeah. I mean, because the, you know, the demographic shredder argument seems to be, you know, just because the, you know, the, well, uh, urbanization, another, I don't have Go another ahead. fact. So suppose, I don't know. Um, well, I, I, so what's the, what's the process? So, I mean, one thing about is that some of the values and some of the psychological inclinations that are weird also lead you to have lower fertility in general. Right. Um, because if you move apart from other people, you're independent minded. The less you're around family seems to be seems to encourage um, fewer children. If you like education, fewer children. So it, it seems to do everything pushes you in the direction of fewer children. Yeah. And you and you that's 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 true. But you would also I mean, you would have you know, you would move towards a sort of optimization where you would you know, if those traits help you succeed. And obviously you're always selecting for more children. You would want, you know, people who, you know, you, you think you would move towards a selective pressure where you get both, you get more children and you would get, um, uh, you know, sort of weird individualists uh, behavior, right? Well, I mean, I think one of the problems with being an individualist is um, you are cultivating your own attributes and accomplishments. And so if you're investing too much in siblings and and children and stuff, then you're not investing in cultivating your own unique attributes. So it seems like there's a psychological push to just reduce fertility. Now, of course, if you have wealth and stuff, that can help you survive shocks and stuff that other people might not survive. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a slam dunk, but. Yeah. Yeah. How does, uh, how do you um, think about your uh, idea about um, the development of weirdness uh, in the context of Max Weber and uh, uh, 
about the Protestant, the, his work on the Protestant work ethic. Um, I, I get the impression from your book that you think that sort of, um, you know, Weber puts a lot into, uh, I, you know, ideas of Protestantism. And I think you do too, but you, you think that they, Europe was going sort of in that direction anyway. Um, do you, do you give a, you know, do you give a lot, do you give a lot to, you know, the existence of Martin Luther as an individual, or do you think sort of, you know, it would have happened anyway, society would have gone in that direction? Yeah. So, I mean, my, I, I mean, Max Weber anticipates uh, a couple of my arguments in the sense that he talks about the dissolution of the kinship systems in his book on the European city. And then, of course, he has his Protestant argument. So in some ways, my uh, my enterprise is to flesh out a lot of that argument and explain how you could get ever get a religion that is as individualistic and mentalistic as Protestantism is. Um, and, you know, part of that is the, is the origin of why the family shrunk. And so, you know, Weber doesn't go down the road of pointing it to the Christian church. A guy named Jack Goody does that. But um, so it gets you that far. Now, now your question about whether you would get Protestant-like religion even without Martin Luther, I mean, I think there's good historical reason to think that would be the case. I mean, my argument would suggest that. But then also you have monks like the Cistercians, which go all the way back to the year 1000, which are already adopting some Protestant-like stuff. And then you have various failed efforts to kind of start Protestant-like um, uh, new changes uh, that look Protestant-like in different places. And I discussed some of those in the book. So even if Martin Luther hadn't been around, I think you would have seen this percolation of new forms of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, that makes, uh, yeah, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. Um, you know, so what do you think, I mean, what do you think about, uh, sort of, you know, you, you, you close up with, uh, in the book with a little bit about sort of modern, uh, society and how to sort of think about political issues. I think you talk about, um, the middle, you know, the, uh, the American attempts to transform, um, the Middle East, um, and you know how that wasn't, uh, you know, that wasn't good. Could it also, I mean, could, would it suggest that maybe we like we can transform other societies or like we can change cultures, but like we have to focus on different things? Like, so the you know the the war in Iraq was sort of just build the democratic institution, and so maybe the idea was you know you should just like have a campaign against if you want countries to succeed, campaign you know global campaign against cousin marriage, right? Um, you know, just like propagandize against that and try to sort of do things like that. Do you think that, that there's sort of a, there's sort of a, uh, instead of negative, you know, sort of a negative uh, uh, implication in the sense that here's like what not to do. Do you think there are sort of positive implications of your theory about like how you can, you know, pr- potentially improve people's lives? Well, yes. Um, I mean, it does, it does tell you what you would need to do. Uh, the problem is, is that, the suggestion is that you need to rewire societies from the ground up. So if you have an, if you have the kinds of societies that exist in Afghanistan, for example, I mean, people's entire livelihoods, notions of honor, security networks, old age, um, you know, uh, social security type uh, insurance is all built through these intensive kinship structures. So it would just be it'd be quite a vast enterprise because you'd have to figure out a way to replace all of that work essentially that these kinship structures do in order to transform you know that society. Yeah, I mean, is uh, you know, is um, I mean, is immigration a, a way to do this? So you know, there's two sides of the immigration thing. It could you know, you could say people's cultures could come and they could change society. 
Um, or it could be that, you know, society changes them. And the question is sort of, you know, the Western society changes the, the migrants and the sort of, it's an empirical question, which ways the, uh, uh, like which, you know, which sort of cause uh, outweighs the other. So how, how do you think about that? Well, I mean, we have good evidence now from immigration studies that, you know, migrants from around the world to the U.S. or Europe or something, um, you know, they assimilated in, you know, three generations or something like that. You can still detect the home country in the second generation immigrants. Uh, but it's, you know, a declining, weakening signal. So, uh, I mean, if you have ethnic enclaves, these things can last longer and whatnot. But uh, people do assimilate. Which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm this is another reason to be skeptical about the genetic differences that you, you mentioned, because assim- immigrants do assimilate so effectively. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's right. Although, I mean, I, I don't want to get, <laughs> I don't want to get digression into the genetics thing again, but it, there's a remarkable, you know, if you look at like, uh, you know, things like, like crime rates and you compare it to the, you know, the home countries, there's a remarkable, you know, I, I'm just struck by the remarkable sort of, sort of these consistencies, but you know, I don't want to go down that, down that road again. Um, what about, uh, you know, the, the, you know, to have so much discussion of cousin marriage, but so little discussion, I think I, w- I was struck by like, uh, you know, little discussion of like sort of, uh, the, you know, sort of, uh, inbreeding problem. I mean, it, it isn't just like the most straightforward, you're going to have this more complicated theories about, uh, cousin marriage, but isn't the more straightforward, you know, problem with it that just causes all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, you know, genetic problems, um, for the next generation. Well, so we do a little bit of analysis on that in a working paper we have that looks at kinship systems and um, GDP, focusing on satellite luminosity as a proxy for GDP. So we can get nighttime imagery of the Earth and use the amount of illumination in each pixel as a proxy for the kind of economic prosperity of that pixel. And then we can look at the traditional kinship structures of those areas based on anthropological data. And, you know, we made a big effort to link those up. And one of the hypotheses we took on is we said, well, what if this is due to the negative cognitive effects of inbreeding? Um, We have estimates for for what those are. And the effects of inbreeding are quite small in terms of how much inbreeding you would need to see the kinds of uh, prosperity differences that we find in the light of luminosity. So whatever this is, it's a small fraction of the total differences we see. The other thing is, you know, people always forget about that there's two sides to the inbreeding coin. One is the negative effects that it has on cognition, which it clearly does have some. Um, but if you have relatively light inbreeding, you also have benefits of altruism. So people help relatives more. So you're actually building up a community and a stronger network. So if you think about a fitness maximizing problem, you know, the, the fitness maximizing solution is not no inbreeding because of the, the altruism benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so the, it makes more altruism. Do you think about that in terms of um, just like distant family, like your cousin is closer to you, or do you think of that in terms of yeah. like ethnic? You bring all your relatives closer, right? Because if you're marrying cousins, then they're producing children who have relatedness through multiple uh, pathways. Yeah. Do you think it? Do you think it? It makes sense at, at the more sort of uh, broader kinship level. Like if you have one ethnic population that uh, does a little bit of inbreeding and the other doesn't, the one that does more inbreeding will be more ethnocentric. Well, I don't think you want to, I don't, well, I don't think that that is likely to be the case. Um, but I do think at the level of the family or clan extended kin networks, that does work. I just don't think it's, the thing is kinship falls off geometrically. So by the time you get out to a tribal population, you've probably lost, lost those effects at that level. 
Okay. So yeah, that brings me to a question uh, about, um, you know, your, your sort of position in the uh, group selection uh, debate. Um, so can, can you, can you sort of explain this? Because I, uh, you know, when I first started reading uh, evolutionary theory, it was like group selection is just, you know, pseudoscience. It, it's nonsense. There's uh, uh, reciprocity. Um, and then there's uh, kin selection. Um, but you take a, you t- uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, exactly sure. I've read a little bit of your stuff. I'm not exactly sure whether you're, you're, you, you, uh, you, you talked about group selection as sort of a, uh, a bookkeeping enterprise. You say, well, these societies, you know, uh, uh, you could, you know, bookkeep at the individual or the family level or, or the broader level. Are, do you have like a fundamental disagreement about like the science of like, you know, evolution here, or is it just sort of like, uh, like you said, sort of a, a, a way to sort of understand data? You, you, if that, does that question make sense? I'm not sure if I'm. Yeah, I think so. Sort of. I mean, I think that the where the problems arise is that uh, what problems that involve social interaction of various kinds, and especially cultural evolution, but this could also apply to genetic evolution. What this kind of formal mathematical machinery shows is that you'll often get uh, many different stable solutions. So, for example, a typical cooperative dilemma. You can have reputational solutions that'll stabilize cooperation in some group, and but it'll also stabilize non-cooperation in that group. Uh, so, and in, in, in various levels of cooperation. So, once you're stable, the in-group selection pressures are keeping that there. So you don't have this thing, this free rider problem that people talk about. So, in the sort of simplistic undergraduate version of this description, there are genes flowing between populations, and when you know there's a lot of cooperators in a group defectors are favored because they can exploit the cooperators. But in these kind of more complex models, defectors are not favored. And in-group selection, whether it's genetic or cultural, wipes out those things. So you have competition amongst these stable equilibria, uh, which can certainly work. And it's very, I think it's very common. I mean, that's the argument uh, in the case of cultural evolution. And it can go relatively fast and it can occur if people copy other groups. And so there are these different ways it can occur. You know, migrants in a genetic model keep their genes for their whole lives and their kids have their genes. But in a cultural model, you can almost overwrite everything within a generation as you grow up. So you don't you don't have these kind of lingering defector genes around um, or lingering defector. Genes. So, yeah, I, I think that's the biggest confusion is the selection among stable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's okay. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that makes, that makes, that makes sense. Um, and you just, you, you seem to, yeah, you seem to think that the, um, so the, the, you know, you have the, these, these, I understand in the context of cultural section, you have this one stable equilibrium here, you know, you have another stable equilibrium here. They could, they compete with each other. Is the, do you have a, you know, idea or is there a disagreement about whether that would create genetically like a different kind of population? Because if, if, if you started out with any kind of, you know, difference between groups, um, one group might lead to one equilibrium, another group might lead to the other equilibrium, that'll be genetic and then that group will take over that. Or do you think that that's sort of just like too small? these differences are probably too small relative to the uh, cultural differences and how fast that changes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just think that, uh, well, I mean, I guess it's an open question, that, but I feel like humans are pretty well mixed genetically. And, but the one, the one place where that might not be the case is when you get these gene culture interactions. So for example, if you have genes that uh, say you're a cattle herding population and you have you're drinking milk, you could get genes that go along with that lifestyle, like lactose, like processing lactose. Uh, 
And then that group could spread by out-competing other groups because it's got this nice package of cattle herding, you know, milk drinking, which allows you to get nutrients from the animals, and then a bunch of things that go along with that. It's kind of a gene culture package. And that thing can actually lock up in a way that interacts the genes and the culture in a cool way. Um, so there's very little work on yeah. Yeah, interesting. Have you uh, read about them? I think it was uh, Cochran and Harpening about the uh, the Amish. And so the idea is you have this cultural traits and basically they give people a choice. You know, you could, I guess you get a year or two years or whatever. I don't know what it is, but they let people basically have a chance to leave the community and some do, right? So they have like, you know, five, six kids and like they lose one or two a generation of the ideas. They would be becoming more Amish uh, across time. Is that, is that sort of the idea is something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, yeah, that could work. Uh, or it could be that, you know, if, you, uh, but you, yeah, so there'd have to be something about Amish lifestyle, which was interacting with a cer- with certain genes that kind of exaggerated each other or something. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps, I mean, does that, you know, that makes me think perhaps, you know, in a, in a liberal society where, you know, uh, let people go off and sort of form their own communities and do what they want, you might get more of this, right? You might have, okay, you can be Amish and you can be, uh, you know, a, a you know, Christian fundamentalist of a different kind right. and you, know, you could be this and, you know, you can sort of have these, you know, some, some groups will have few kids, right? There's many demographics who see their fertility plummet, but among those groups that do have some uh, uh, reproduction, um, you know, you would have sort of heightened, do you, do you think, I mean, the, that gets me thinking, but do you think that something like this is maybe, is maybe not yet at the genetic endure. It would always have to you endure, always, right? In order to get any yeah. genetic evolution, you ha- it'd have to endure. So that's the tricky part. Yeah, exactly. So that would work with the Amish. I mean, they're, they're, they've been around for, you know, hundreds of years. It's not going to work. Yeah, you're right. It's, it would have to. Yeah. Endure. Although thousands that would be. You think, yeah. You think thousands? I mean, David Reich, um, you know, in his book, argues that evolution happens at a little bit of a faster rate. Have you, do you have a feeling about uh, Reich's, yeah, Reich's I mean, work? I think, I think it does happen faster than some people have argued. Um, hundreds is pretty quick. Uh, I mean, it all depends on how much, what the trade is, and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's all quant, quant, quantitative. So certainly you can get some amount of change in, in hundreds of years. You just can't get that much. So can you measure? Probably. Um, how important is it? Not sure. I mean, we can measure, it's probably the case that the genes that cause people to be more religious um, have increased over the 20th century in the U.S. Uh, just because religious people have more kids, right? So, Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, religion the observance has gone down. So at least in the in the short run, it's it's having a canceling out effect, but you think in the long run, you know, the genes are probably... Right. Well, and so uh, there's that paper by Jonathan Beauchamp and others that suggest that education genes are probably in under negative selection, uh, but education has increased massively. So culture just keeps trouncing all over genetics. Yeah, yeah. Although education is a sort of a strange trait because, I mean, we define this thing called education, right? It's like, it's like you know, it's same with intelligence. That's also a social construct, but, it, you know, it seems more real than, you know, what, yeah, what I the mean, standards I, are for I, what we give people a degree. I would be interested in your take on this, but I think that's true of every trait. We mm-hmm. always have to decide think, what to measure. Uh, well, I mean, you don't think, I mean, so, like, you know, aggression, right? Like, it's it strikes me as clear that some people are more, you know, uh, Say yeah. quick to so, commit violence. You just, others, did, right? you just did a very, you just did a very weird thing in the psychological sense. Was you the thing you nominated was a dispositional trait, but what natural selection is going to work on is aggression in fitness optimizing situations. 
So you would optimally, you should be aggressive when you need to be aggressive, but not aggressive when it's going to work against you, right? So you should be very context sensitive. Um, anyway, I, it, it's far from clear to me that, that aggression as a trait is something that is generally going to be under selection because selection cares on being aggressive here, not being aggressive there, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we could, we could talk more about this, but before, you know, I know, I know your time is limited. Um, so, uh, I want I wanted to get to sort of how was the reaction been to your book? Because I know you've thought a little bit about uh, academic freedom issues, uh, sort of, uh, you know, the political culture of universities, your book, I think, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, I, you know, it's not like, you know, it's, you know, it's not like, I think people are going to get super offended by it, but people get offended by a lot these days. And you're sort of, you know, you're taking for granted that Western societies have succeeded in some way. And, you know, there's an assumption that the success, you know, Western industrial civilization is desirable. Um, maybe that's not, maybe that's not a characterization, but that's the feeling I get from the book. And, you know, that is something that probably shouldn't be controversial, uh, but is so, I mean, has there already been sort of any pushback to your work on sort of what do you think is like maybe, you know, political or ideological grounds? Yeah, I mean, the main pushback, which pops up in a couple of the reviews, although most of them are positive, but it pops up in a couple of the reviews, and there's been a little bit of scholarly debate on it, is just that uh, there's a strong desire amongst people from, you know, kind of the postmodernist humanities side that want to put everything as kind of glorifying uh European, the triumph of European societies and, you know, kind of this very old timey frame that somehow there's this ladder of societies and Europeans are at the top. And I think of the book as very much a reply to that saying that, you know, what led to the rise of Europe and global conquests and the industrial revolution and stuff like that had more to do with the fluky details of a particular brand of Christianity, which set, set Europeans down a particular pathway. Um, not judging it as morally better or morally worse. I, throughout the book, I, you know, point out there's two sides to every coin. So for example, when I discuss analytic thinking, this section is called, you know, missing the forest through the trees because analytic thinkers tend to focus on the bits and miss the whole. There's another section called weird people are bad friends, because if you're going to, you know, tell the truth in court, you might do it at the expense of a friend or some other close relative, right? So there's all these virtues that, you know, you can, you can see it either way. So I'm, I'm trying to tell this very balanced story. But in any case, my critics want to, to, to ignore the fact that it's very much a reply to people who might tell this old time self-aggrandizing story uh, and just try to put it in that category, which it's, you know, I think it's in some sense doing the opposite. You know, I think that's where the, that the facts support. Uh, but anyway, so, but so I've had to deal with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost, um, the, uh, the, the marriage and family plan. It's almost like the opposite. It's like the church was sort of selfish, right. It wanted to break down family ties. It's not like the Christian doctrine because it was the most loving or you know most good or whatever. It was like, they wanted to break down family ties. And this was like a way to sort of, and you have this, you know, this discussion about like how they would sort of manipulate people to giving them all their money at their death. So in some ways it looks like these people, uh, you know, in the early uh, Western civilization, you know, had some negative traits and were doing some bad things, but it ended up, you know, as a byproduct having beneficial right. effects. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So uh, what, what, uh, last question, uh, what are you, what are you working on now? Um, what, is there another big project coming up? Can we look forward to another sort of tome like the, these two last few books and uh, in the near future? Yeah, so I am looking at um, one of the one of the themes I develop in both of those books is the idea of the collective brain, and we talked about it this at the beginning. 
uh, I'm really trying to push that idea now and really think about all the ways in which this thing plays out, whether it's in what makes companies innovative or explaining, you know, the last few hundred years of U.S. innovation, why immigrants are so important to driving innovation, um, uh, those kinds of things. And including in this innovation and thinking. So not only have we accumulated a body of new technologies and tools, we've accumulated more mental tools and more ways of processing information that make it easier to kind of search the thought space and, and figure out new ideas. Interesting. And, and what about my idea of sort of applying this to, to AI? Have you ever thought about doing some research in that area? Well, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about it. Uh, I haven't, I've been trying to figure out, uh, where that's going and what I think about that. Cause in some ways I like to think of AI as just another technology, right? It can be another kind of augmentation to our cognition and we can get it to do cognitive work that was previously hard for us, like abacuses and calculators and writing and things like that. Right. So you can just think of it as another one of those, so. but we'll see. I'm not exactly sure. So I'm, I'm still at work on the book. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the AI thing. I mean, yeah, you could think about it as a as a technology, but also the the alignment problem. I think a lot of people think. I mean, even if you could rebut this, and you think this is the wrong way to think about it, they think that this is like a monster that's going to get out of you know out of our heads. So if you could say, well, that's my theories make this more likely, or my theories you know make us make this less likely, you know, selfishly, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> that's what I'd like. That's the next book I'd I'd like to read. But you know, you, you'll work on what you want to work on. Okay, Professor Heidrich, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Good being with you.